Hi, I'm Maria Stolger and welcome to episode 74 of Talking with Painters. This is the third of three episodes where I take you through the works of podcast guests who were shortlisted in the Archibald Wynn and Sulman. And as I'm recording this, that exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and it's on until 8 September 2019. If you haven't heard it already, have a listen to my short intro in episode 71, which explains how you can see the works I'm going to talk about. Basically, you don't have to be at the gallery to listen to this, although I highly recommend it. If you're looking online, there are links on talkingwithpainters.com, which take you to the paintings. And if you'd like more information about any artists, you can click on the name of that artist, which will take you to their podcast interview and video. I'm going to be talking about 12 works in the Archibald, but there are 51 in total, so take your time and make sure you take them all in. It's a great selection. If you're following on from the last episode and you've just seen the Win exhibition, we're going to be entering the very next room from where we left off. But if you've just got to the gallery, we're starting in the room with painting 41 by Jude Ray. You can see it on the gallery map on the website or just look for the large number on the wall. So let's get started. Jude is one of Australia's great portrait painters and is equally well known for her still life work and architectural interiors, which are just absolutely breathtaking. Her painting is called Sarah Pierce as Miss Docker in Patrick White's A Cheery Soul, and it's of the actor Sarah Pierce in character in mid-performance as an ageing homeless woman. Unsurprisingly, it's been highly commended in this year's Archibald. And this isn't the first time Jude has painted Sarah for the Archibald. In 2014, I was blown away by Jude's previous portrait, and it remains one of my all-time favourite Archibald paintings. And you can see that painting if you click on Jude's name on the website. She says that this painting is a homage to one of Velasquez's paintings. And she talks about Diego Velasquez in the podcast interview. But in our conversation, she also mentioned that she was influenced by Cy Twomley. And she was particularly interested in his use of dripping paint. And I can see she's used that technique in this painting. If you look closely, you can see a subtle dripping in the hair from her handbag and definitely in the background, which really loosens the whole painting. And we spoke about this very point in the podcast. I'd been looking at Velasquez, thinking about this sort of theme that has always underpinned my, my, my work, which is a, a sort of tension between the will to describe and a need to, to, to open the paint so that it, it has an, op, an open quality about it. Um, what do you so, mean? Um, that I wanted to... I've always wanted to keep the paint alive and often in my efforts to <laughs> to describe it gets a bit tight it's always got a bit tight and so my what I've was sort of been conscious of trying to do is to work against that if I can The next painting I want to talk about is by Jonathan Dalton it is called Sally and Her Boys and it's number 14 and it's of the artist Sally Anderson sitting in a chair um, with her partner artist Guy Maestri in the background holding their little baby and this is 
Jonathan's third consecutive year in the Archibald. He was selected on his first entry and couldn't enter before that because he wasn't a permanent resident. So all three paintings he's ever entered have been selected. And it's interesting because the previous two paintings he had his sitters sitting on a couch and the paintings were in a rectangular format. And this time he has Sally sitting on a chair um, in a square format and he's done a beautiful job with that composition because traditionally a, a portrait is is really done in a square format unless I suppose it's a head and shoulders. Um but balancing those books near Sally's feet and the echoing of the lines of the limbs, they all really create a very pleasing scene. Uh, Jonathan's also well known for his photorealist still lifes, and I think that large urn on the left is an indication of his skills in that department. Um, and we talked a lot in our conversation about photography and the use of photos in, in his process, and you might be surprised to hear that he used over 40 photographs as reference when he painted his portrait of James Drinkwater and Lottie Consalvo in, in 2017. Um, it's not as if he just got one photo and, and re, you know, just copied it religiously. He um, had to, he amalgamated a whole lot of, of different parts of the body to create um, that painting, which is really is quite astonishing. Have a listen to a short clip from our conversation where he talks about photorealism. I think especially when you paint in, in quite a realistic, you know, way, uh, the term that I like to use is theatrical realism. So it's that notion of having like a little bit of theatre and drama and it being a slightly contrived, almost artificial scene that something's happening or, you know, you're, you're, you're there in a moment with them. And a lot of that is done in the, before any paint even goes on on the page. Uh, not the page, the, the canvas. before any paint goes on the canvas. Um, and to, that's where I think, you know, we were talking about photography earlier, but that's where uh, photography is a massive boon to artists who paint that way because mm. you don't have to do, you know, spend like eight hours doing a study to see whether or not it works. You can almost see, okay, th there's something there, there's something there. I can strip out this element, I can introduce this. And you do a little bit of creation with, the, you know, with my paintings, quite a detailed drawing, and then the pink goes on top. But you're almost before anything happens on the canvas, you've almost got the image finished. The next work uh, we're going to look at in this room is by Prudence Flint. It's called The Stand and it's work number 22. And the thing that is unusual, if you know anything about Prudence's work, is that she has a man in this picture. And the man is Richard Stringer, who is her companion of over 30 years. I don't think I've ever seen a man in any of her previous work. She's placed him in an intimate scene with another woman, although in our interview we talked about the idea that every portrait is a kind of self-portrait and that we can't really ever get away from ourselves. So I wonder whether there is a part of her in there too. Moments of intimacy are everywhere in Prudence's work, from a woman showering to cleaning her teeth to lying on a bed. She works in a limited palette and she can take weeks in the beginning stages of the painting, drawing on the canvas with charcoal before she finds the composition that she feels is going to work. I found our conversation fascinating because she also talked about the inner critic and how to quell that negative voice and how she has to almost be the painting when she's creating it. 
and I found it so hard to choose um, an audio bite for this episode. But I decided on a part of our conversation where she talks about her painting logic. So I often start my paintings by doing some little, just little pencil sketches, just out of my imagination. Because if I start, if I start them with reality, from reality, if I take photos mm. from reality, it, often the the painting composition will be really dull. So I, I, what I do is I'll make up the composition in, and I'll draw it up, and then get my reference and make the reference fit into the my my idea oh, right. and, and my composition that I make up in my head. And that's why they're, they're often distorted because they, it has to be painting logic. It has to be my own pictorial painting logic. And the reality has to fit into that, not the other way around. What do you mean by that, the okay. painting logic? Well, you've got this picture plane and how to, how to create some kind of space, some imaginary space so my imaginary space has to be the priority here. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily about the right perspective or it, it's my perspective. It's, it's yeah, what's going to create nice shapes and emotive, what's going to serve the painting's idea. So mm. the negative spaces have to serve the purpose of what I'm trying to make, the mood, the atmosphere I'm trying to create. Mm. The next painting we're going to talk about is by the winner of the Archibald Prize, Tony Costa. It's called Lindy Lee and it's number 13. I interviewed Tony both on the day of the Archibald announcement and for an in-depth interview, which is episode 70 on the podcast. Now, if you know nothing about Tony's painting, what you'll be surprised to hear is that this work was almost entirely painted with his bare hands. No brushes, no palette knives, just surgical gloves covering his hands and his fingers do the rest. He also paints on a flat surface, not an easel, and his working table is actually a hospital bed with a large piece of masonite on top so he can raise and lower it if he needs to. You can see his studio and the table in my video, which is on the website, where he also shows his painting technique. It's absolutely fascinating. It also took him two days to paint this painting, um, and he painted for 14 hours straight on the first day with a 10-minute break for lunch, as he didn't want to lose the flow or to overwork the painting. He also deliberately wanted to make it look as though Lindy was floating. So when she was meditating, he pulled the robe over the front of the platform she was sitting on so he could achieve that sense of weightlessness rather than a, a, a weight on a visible surface. Um, and he wanted to convey that because Lindy had said to him that after she had meditated, she felt like she, she was floating. Most importantly, though, is Tony's aim to trap energy in his paintings. And he seeks to do that whether he paints a portrait or a landscape. He, in fact, won the Paddington Art Prize for Landscape Painting in 2014. And landscape painting is a very big part of his practice. Even a rock has an energy, he told me. And if you can trap that in the painting, he says, then that's going to be there in a thousand years' time. Another important part of his work is the use of line um, and have a listen to this clip where we talk about that. And also I'm not mm. interested in volume. I'm only interested in, 
in um, suggesting somebody's hair or suggesting somebody's face. Mm. So I use the line to to get away from solids, which is something that Ian Fairweather said. And I love that idea that you can still describe a shape, but you don't have to render a shape. You don't have to create that 3D quality because it's not what you want. You're after something else. Mm. So the line um, is used as a, as a summary or as, or as a suggestion. Yeah, and so it's a much flatter effect in yeah. that way. Yeah, or extremely flat. Yeah. But I'm, I'm only interested in compressed space, shallow space, because by doing that, it forces me to concentrate on the rhythm. Mm. If I start thinking about perspective and volume and getting it right, then I, I lose my concentration. So I can bring my concentration back to the rhythm. And also, if I'm working with line, I work from the gut rather than my head. And if I'm working on a flat surface, I have to somehow find a way of bypassing my brain because that's where the ego lives. <laughs> yeah, right. And also, you know, to suspend judgment. The next painting is by Black Douglas um, and it's called White Shell's Black Heart. It's number 18. And this is a painting of artist Esme Timbery, and she and Black had exhibited together back in 2000. And her trademark work involves creating sculpture out of shells, and he's used shells that she gave him in the background of this painting. You'll see there's also a seven-tiered striped background, which is Black's trademark in his own landscape painting, as is the cracking effect of the paint. You can also, if you look closely, see other different applications of paint um, sprayed with what I believe was a toothbrush in some sections and printing effects in others. Funnily enough, the two works in this exhibition are probably not representative of the majority of Black's work as he's usually concerned with social issues, particularly in relation to injustices towards the Indigenous community, and his paintings usually uh, reflect that. But this is his third time as a finalist in the Archibald, so I think portraiture will continue to be a part of his practice. In our conversation, Black was telling me how this particular painting came about. Both Esme and I uh, staged a duo show in the foyer of the studio at the Opera House. So she makes those gorgeous little shell models of the Opera House and Harbour Bridge and little slippers that adorn most institutions. So approaching her and reminding her when I phoned her up, hey, aunt, remember we had that show? And of course she remembered like that. Hey, I'd like to paint you for the Archibald this year. Well, I was speaking to her daughter and she just, she nearly dropped the phone and said, oh, we love that. That would be beautiful because mum's turning 88 this year. Great. Let's go. Need to be memorialised. And I'm pretty sure that she notches up the accolade of being the longest practicing urban Aboriginal artist. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's really significant. Yeah. That's great that you've chosen yeah. her. Um, and so uh, I painted a humdinger of a piece. I'm surprised the thing's still on the canvas, on the, <laughs> on the stretcher. That, like, Why? It, it must weigh, it must weigh kilos, you know. Because there's so um, many layers. Not, a, not only the layers of paint that I've used, but also... Um, the volume of shells, because she gave me a bucket of shells uh, because I told her I wanted to use shells in it to make that ultimate um, homage to her. And um, anyway, um, I hope they stay on there. Yeah. (laughs) 
The next painting is by Paul Ryan. It's called Self-Portrait in the Studio with the Beastie Boys, painting James Drinkwater for the Archibald Prize, Los Amigos. And it's number 43. He also has a painting in the Sulman this year as well. What I love about this painting is the fact that Paul based the structure of this on the painting of Velasquez called Las Meninas. If you've never seen it, just Google it. There's YouTube videos about it. It really is such an influential painting. In the painting Las Meninas, the painter is actually in the painting and he is, and his sitter is reflected in a mirror uh, behind him. And so Paul is in this portrait painting the sitter and in this case the artist James Drinkwater is reflected in the mirror behind him. So as Paul points out, it's really a double portrait. The Beastie Boys are next to Paul, where the Infanta would be in Velasquez's painting, but I think that's about where the similarity ends. And like Paul's Sulman painting, we're again thrust into a visual feast of luscious paint. And I must say he's done a brilliant job with the likeness of James Drinkwater, who is also a, a, a guest on the podcast, which is not easy to do when you're manipulating thick paint in such an economical way. I also love the way he's left a lot of the canvas unpainted and he even leaves his initial drawing to show through in some places. It gives the painting a certain vitality. Paul's been a finalist in the Archibald 13 times and has painted many fascinating sitters, including Noah Taylor, who he painted repeatedly over many years. And he's painted the troubled artist, the late Adam Cullen, who was also an Archibald winner. Well, I, I think I, in a way I'm drawn to characters that you can get your teeth into as an artist, you know, that there's more to them, I mean, more to them than just what they look like, but there's their whole life story as well. Mm. And so he was certainly one of those characters. Oh, yeah, definitely. So for me, I like to paint people who are visually interesting, have an amazing story of their life, and are people that I admire their work. That, you know, that really helps me. The next painting is a portrait by Mark Etherington. It's a well-known Australian artist, Idris Murphy, and it's called Idris Murphy and his dog, Wally. It's number 20. As I mentioned in, um, his, in relation to his Win Prize painting, he's a self-taught artist, and it all started one bleak winter in Canada when he was looking for something to do indoors and started painting. And he came up with an octopus with Ronald McDonald and Colonel Sanders in its tentacles, which gives you an idea of his work when he's not doing portraits. They're fantastically imaginative. Some senior artists um, have advised him not to go to art school, and I can see it's because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This portrait is so Mark Etherington, a portrait of the artist Idris Murphy wearing a shirt covered in dogs and with 18 Idris Murphy sculptures protruding from the frame. He likes mixing it up and um, doing sculpture when he's not doing painting so that he can keep his practice interesting. When I interviewed him, he talked about his Archibald experience and this is what he had to say. Yeah, this year there were a lot of self-portraits so there's been commented on yeah. that there's a lot of yeah, self-portraits that got in finalists yeah. this year did you find how did you find doing a self-portrait versus doing you know a portrait of the previous ones where they're very well-known people did it feel less pressure oh I think it felt more pressure because I I can't really paint myself very well and I don't 
I don't think it really turned out as much of a likeness as I'd want. And I've had a few people say, who is that in the painting? And I said, oh, that's me. <laughs> really? Even though it says me and Granny. Yeah, so it's been, it's a bit hard, I think. Does, it feel, does that feel, how do you feel when people are critical? Oh, I don't know if that's criticism, actually, but yeah. if they say something like that. Um, I think, especially being in the Archie, I think the first year when you're reading reviews and things like that, it's sort of you take it to heart and be like, oh, they don't like my work or whatever. But I think the Archie, everyone's a critic for the Archie, so you're going to hear negative stuff no matter what. So I mm. think now I'm sort of, it doesn't really bother me. Well, it's hard to get a thick skin in, in that world, I yeah. reckon. Yeah, it's hard uh, putting yourself out there and, you know, for people to look at. It's, it's, that's really hard. Yeah. But I was supposed to paint um, Idris Murphy um, for this year and I did a couple paintings of him, which turned out really bad. So mm. I was working on this one of me and Granny and I ended up putting that in. So I'm hopefully um, going to paint Idris uh, next year. The next painting is by Laura Bell Swarovski and it's a painting of singer, songwriter and musician Megan Washington and her baby Amos and dog Art. It's called Meg and Amos and Art and it's number 44. What struck me immediately with this painting was the composition and lovely rhythm in the work. Once your eye has taken in the subject and her baby, it travels down that gorgeously patterned blanket to the dog in the bottom left-hand corner. You might not be able to see this if you're looking at the work online, but the surface of the painting is very textured and it appears to be prepared with plaster, presumably by Lorabelle, which I suspect would have caused all sorts of challenges when it comes to painting the face. But even though the texture is just as intrusive in that area, she deals with it beautifully without it interrupting the reading of the face at all. Lorabelle has a huge Instagram following, close to 100,000 followers. She's incredibly generous on Instagram because she often posts instructional videos on how she paints, which is a goldmine for any artist interested in realist painting, which is what she usually um, ha does these videos about. Not all her paintings are realist. Um, she's doing some amazing recent work where uh, the background is like a very interesting formal architectural background uh, with a more of an abstract figure in the foreground. Anyway, if a student is ever interested in looking at some painting techniques, uh, go to Laura Bell's story highlights in on her Instagram page because they are really fantastic. When I interviewed Laura Bell, she was talking about Instagram as a research tool and she talks here about how researching artists has helped her own work. I really live in art. So I, when I'm not working in the studio, I'm watching a documentary or I'm reading something or just on Instagram scrolling through and just researching artists. So whether or not I am actually doing it in the style of an artist, the knowledge is there. So I'm, I'm, it's constantly, um, influencing the mark making that I do. Mm -hmm. This next painting is by Laura Jones. It's called Nakaya in her dressing room and it's a portrait of writer and actor Nakaya Louie. 
What strikes me about Laura's work is her confident use of colour and brushwork. And there's always something a bit surprising about it, especially in her flower paintings, which she's very well known for. A colour that you weren't quite expecting, a shape that adds an element of abstraction to an otherwise figurative work. She's also an environmentalist and created a stunning body of work relating to the Great Barrier Reef after spending time there after a severe bleaching event a few years ago. If you have a chance, have a listen to my interview with her where she explains the devastation of what's happening in the reef in a very clear and intelligent way. But she's also a portraitist and she's been a finalist in many portrait prizes and I spoke to her about whether this is a big part of her practice. Do you have a portrait going all the time? No. It's a sort of thing I do quite randomly. Um, I, don't, I don't do it much. It's more if the, there's someone there that's sort of up for posing and, the, you know, all the stars align, then I'll do one. Uh, you know, portraits are amazing in the way that they are sort of time markers in mm. the way that flower paintings are as well. The painting's definitely of that time, you know, when, it, yeah. well, when I paint portraits anyway because I really enjoy painting, like, the fabric and the mm. hairstyles. And <laughs> the next painting is by Vanessa Stockard and is a portrait of Maclean Edwards, simply titled Maclean. It's number 45. Both Maclean and Vanessa have been guests on the podcast and Maclean is the winner of this year's Sulman Prize. And I just love this painting, which apparently took 53 attempts. I would love to see an exhibition of those 53 works. And Vanessa is an artist who likes to keep exploring and experimenting. Don't do one, don't do two, do 50. When I visited her in her studio in Barrel, she was exploring the self-portrait and there were dozens of them in the studio, as well as glorious still lifes and, of course, paintings from her Derek Milkwood series where she compassionately portrays a very odd, complex character. But one of the interesting things about this painting, I think, is the colour. Not only the beautiful combination of greens in the background, but the cool skin tones mixed with patches of pink and orange, which is very typical of her portraits. Vanessa says she wanted to highlight Maclean's depth, unique complexity and beauty. And there's something about that gaze that I believe seems to tap into an inner life. She also mentions McLean's humour, and I must say that these were two of the funniest guests on the podcast. Another thing I love about this painting is the line which appears on the right-hand side of the coat, suggestive of the outline of a lapel, which doesn't quite correlate with the other side, which is its charm, of course. And without it, can you see that the composition just doesn't work as well without it there? And that, my friends, is the difference between the average painter and the good painter. I feel there's a confidence in Vanessa's work which makes her paintings really strong. What will influence you as to what colours you use? Um, I'm actually, it's hard to believe, but I'm trying to just paint what I see there and maybe I exaggerate a little bit. So, yeah, so we've got like this, you know, purples, pinks, oranges, greens, blues. Yeah. Um, You don't shy away from colour, obviously. I love colour. My grandmother, she um, was an amateur painter and she just loved colour as well and, and uh, I spent a lot of quality time with her and another reason why art's always been in the family. Um, 
so, and I loved her and she passed this year. She turned 100 and I miss her so much. But um, I think I learned my, yeah, love of every colour from her. The next painting is by Natasha Bieniek and it's a self-portrait called Waiting for Arden. It's number five and it's a painting of the pregnant artist sitting on her bed. The last time I went to the gallery, gazing in amazement at this work, I overheard someone next to me say to their friend, look at that. I mean, who can do that? Answer, not many people. You might ask how on earth she's able to achieve such an amazing likeness in such a small space, and it's by the use of absolutely tiny brushes. If you want to look at her actual brushes, I took video in her studio a couple of years ago, and you can also see how she mixes up a palette before she starts the day painting. But the challenge with painting images like this is that if you get a facial feature out by less than a millimetre, it's going to look very strange indeed. And there are not many artists who could achieve this level of expertise. And I would say that's internationally. In the clip you're about to hear, have a listen to her talk about the brushes she uses in her work. I've got a variety of brushes in different shapes and different sizes. Um, they are small right from the beginning. The smallest brush that I have is a 20-0. So if you think of a zero being about the size of a match head, the 20-0 is a 20th of a match head. So it's a, it's a script style brush and it's perfect for um, creating very accurate marks. Um, in my first couple of miniature paintings, I experimented using pins and needles and that kind of thing. But I felt that I was able to do the same thing with just the tiny brushes. I was able to um, have control of the brushes. The next painting is by Natasha Walsh and it's called A Liminal Space. It's a self-portrait and it's number 49. This is the fourth consecutive year that Natasha has been selected as a finalist in the Archibald. And last year, she had a very big year with winning three big prizes, the Brett Whiteley Travelling Arts Scholarship, the Kilgour Prize and the Mossman Art Prize, all with self-portraits and all painted from life. I interviewed her last year in her studio and at that point she was working in the corner of the dining room with lots of different mirrors and you can have a look at that on the video on the website. She's a thoughtful woman and this comes across in this self-portrait, seemingly floating in space but also a dramatic movement in the sky behind her. If you look closely, she uses the bare copper surface to describe parts of her painting, her hair and the grasses silhouetted against the sky. And interestingly, there's a thicker layer of paint in the background than in the figure itself, which is the reverse of most paintings where the face tends to gain the most attention. But what's amazing about Natasha is that she's so interested in the support and materials she uses. I don't think she has painted on canvas in a long time. She paints on copper, has painted on board and marble and has used wax as well as oil paints. And she's even done a series of works on copper where she applied materials which reacted with the copper to make the image rather than painting on the surface. So you feel as though you're quite confident about being able to achieve that likeness and now you're sort of looking beyond that. Yeah, well, that's why, that's why I've always... That's why all my work has never just been painting on a canvas. 
Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. because I'm not interested in demonstrating draftsmanship. Do yeah. you know what I mean? That doesn't interest me. I'm interested in transforming materials into ideas. Yeah. And and I'm interested in I'm interested in the magic of that, you know, how the waxwork looks like flesh and how mm-hmm. the the copperwork just um it's changes but what I mean by that is not just the making of it but changes when it's depending on how it's lit you know depending Mm -hmm. on how the light um Mm -hmm. reflects through the layers of oil paint depending on how I'm I'm interested in yeah I I feel like you can't see yourself going back to just painting on canvas no because I never did to be honest Mm -hmm. I really didn't I did I did a lot of drawing um because that was thinking um but um no painting painting on canvas has never interested me because um it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel, for me personally, like, yeah, it's not, it's not my path. The next series of works are by Ewan McLeod, and they're a series of portraits of Rodney Popel called Four Rodneys, and it's number 34. Ewan won the Archibald Prize in 1999 with a self-portrait, and it was the first art prize he ever won. So that's setting the benchmark pretty high early on. He then went on to win the Wynn, the Salmon, the Blake, the Tattersalls, the Gallipoli Art Prize and, and many others. Let's just say he's one of our most celebrated artists and was on my wish list when I started this podcast. Interestingly, these were originally meant to be studies for a larger painting, but I'm so glad they were entered because they are just fabulous. I suspect each was done in one sitting and I notice from the dates that two were done in the one day. It's incredible that he's able to achieve such a consistent likeness and vitality in such a short period. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll probably notice he's often mentioned by other guests and he's very highly regarded in Australia's artist community. So I'm glad we're ending off the Archibald tour with the voice of the wonderful Ewan McLeod. I never feel that I've done enough painting. I always feel like I should be doing... Well, no, it's not that I've done enough. It's not never done... You know, you, you search... It's like surfers talk about the perfect wave... I think you're always wanting the perfect painting, and I'm sure if you ever did what you what you thought was the perfect painting, you'd just want to repeat it. You'd want to do it again. So you you're continually searching to do it better, and mm. to say something more, or you, you know just want you want it. There's a sort of a slight sense of anxiety about not it not being enough mm. or not being good enough. And I've thought about that a lot, and I think it's very important to have that, mm-hmm. to to feel slightly... Um, I think if you thought everything you did was wonderful and amazing, um, you'd never push yourself any further. Thanks so much for joining me on this tour. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope I'm still doing this in two years' time to celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the Archibald Prize. If this is the first episode of the podcast you've ever listened to. I hope you get a chance to go back and listen to even more episodes. If you're looking for a way to support the podcast, it'd be wonderful if you could go to iTunes and leave a rating and review because that's how more people find out about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters.